You're listening to the Modern Learners Podcast, and I'm Missy Emler, your host. In this podcast, we explore topics in education through the Modern Learners lens. We dig into our beliefs about learning, the modern contexts that impact learning in schools, and the practices that create the conditions for learning to take place. No matter how hard we challenge the status quo, remember this. We're not asking you to change. We're asking you to learn. Now, let's get started. At Modern Learners, we are definitely dreaming about what's possible in schools post-pandemic and always. But in this moment, when it seems everyone else is looking to the future, I thought taking a trip down memory lane would be a good idea. The next few episodes on the Modern Learners podcast will feature educational historians excited to share what we can learn from history so we can create a more equitable and sustainable approach to learning in schools. My first guest is Jen Binnis. She is the president at the consulting firm known as SchoolMarmAdvisors.com. We'll get started right now with some insight from Jen. Jen, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, where you are, and what you do in the world? Absolutely. Uh, So my name is uh, Jen, and actually it's pronounced Binnis, which is totally unfair to everybody because it wasn't originally Binnis. It was Beginniskevich. And my husband's family chopped off the part that identified them as Polish uh, in the mid-70s. So it's, it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense with the English language, but it's pronounced Binnis. And uh, like I said, I'm in Buffalo and I am deeply fascinated by the history of American education and absolutely thrilled to talk to you about it today. Uh, I am currently the president of a consulting group called School Marm Advisors, and we provide education research and editorial feedback to education authors. So when teachers are writing a book on curriculum and they want to know the history of curriculum, we help them understand kind of what the history of curriculum in American schools has been. We help people understand that everything in education has a history and we can better envision the future when we understand the past. So exactly like what your podcast is doing. That is fascinating. And can you give us the web address for that organization? Sure. It's schoolmarmadvisors.com. Awesome. That and sounds I, fascinating. On the uh, website, I explain why, we, why I picked the name Schoolmarm. Uh, I think it has a fascinating history that kind of gets at a lot of the tensions we want to unpack. So f- I was a former middle school special education teacher, and I am the stereotypical average American teacher. I am in my early 40s. I'm a white woman. Uh, My pronouns are she and her. I went to a state college within 100 miles of where I grew up, and my first teaching job was in 50 miles of where I grew up. So I have a parallel path down to (laughs) being a middle school special ed teacher. It's so wonderful. Like our, and so that's kind of like one of the tensions is I want to talk about all of the, the diverse, rich human experiences in American education, but yet so many of us, you know, so many teachers are middle-aged white women and we need to talk and negotiate that. And we need to have a lot of conversation about that. Absolutely. And it's not the easiest conversation to come to because it's conversation many people don't necessarily recognize that it needs to happen. And so it often catches people off guard unless they know they're going into that conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like they want the heads up that, Oh, we know we're going to talk about race and gender. And I think that's, and then they still might exit the conversation. (laughs) Yeah. This isn't the right time for me right now. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So can you just start by talking a little bit about where we are right now and what specific historical stories might impact the experience going forward. Sure. So whenever I talk with on podcasts or with authors that anyone on American education history, I invite them to think of a rubber band. 
where it rubbed one rubber band, the one end is, uh, let's say February 28th before the pandemic um, happened. And then we can think about how far back we wanna pull the rubber band. So what's very popular and very common is that people pull the rubber band back to the late 1800s and make claims that American schools are based on factories or it's about training kids to work in factories. And unfortunately, because that particular history misses a whole bunch, if we pull the rubber band back even further, uh, you know, as far as it will go, we can see that one of the first documents on this soil related to education was about the re-education of indigenous children taken hostage. And so one of the first letters that came over from London to the Virginia colonies was from the mayor of London telling those who were in the Virginia colonies, if you happen to see an indigenous child and you kidnap them and you need to beat them to make them a good Christian, that's okay. Don't worry about it. That's not a problem. And, and so, there is where the trauma <laughs> begins. Yeah, exactly. And then we have that whole history of from kind of that point forward, going through all of chattel slavery and the fact that literacy was illegal for uh, the children and the adults who were enslaved, we then can see the creation of the common school movement, but that common school movement was very much focused on the needs of white children, primarily white boys. Yes, girls attended, but the vision for girls was about their role as future mothers and wives. And so all of that informs everything that happened before the late 1800s. Right. And I have seen a lot of tweets and writings from you sort of talking about the factory model is exactly like you say, it's, it doesn't take us back far enough. And so are you saying that the factory model conversation and flaws in education that people reference as the flaws in education. Um, how did, how do, why do people think that that's the beginning point? <laughs> I think because it's a comfortable narrative. And one of the tensions we have to reconcile with is the people most likely to claim the factory model tend to be middle-aged white men who are tangentially related to education. In some cases, they taught a little bit. In other cases, they're philanthropists who think they need to change schools. Um, so I think part of what, I'm very comfortable saying the factory model is a myth. When someone says, oh, schools are based on factories, I'm more than happy to say, nope, that's not true. And one of the first Wikipedia articles I ever edited was on the myth of the factory model. So that when people Google factory model, hopefully the Wikipedia article comes up. And what it does is it just tells a very particular story. It's a comfortable, safe story to tell that, oh, schools are about grinding kids down and schools are about this and about that. And, and it's an evil, evil thing because all we need to do is sweep in and change high school or change the way schools work. And unfortunately, it replicates a pattern where it is men, mostly white, mostly um, not having spent a lot of time in the classroom, who have an idea of what school needs to be, telling the women, mostly white, who are teachers, this is what you need to do. So we have the issues of gender politics, we have uh, issues related to race and class and disability status. So there's never just a single story. Right. That is so fascinating to me because I'm so curious about how in the world we might go about changing the narrative that that's where the narrative begins. <laughs> I, you know, I, uh, as part of the reason why I started uh, the work that I'm doing now with Schoolmarm, we start, I think, by correcting the current historical record. We start by making sure books that are written now that are supposed to help the field don't simplify the history. That we start by embedding race and culture or race and gender and disability status in all of the conversations that we're having so that when we talk about curriculum, we're talking about gender and race and disability status. It's not just saved for conversations about gender, race and disability status. We make it the norm that all conversations about education have to also talk about race and gender and disability status. Right, because though, so we've, 
Let's dig into that a little bit more because I don't necessarily have the perfectly formed question, but what I think you're trying to tell me or to to share is that race and gender and disability status has always been left out of the historical narrative that we tend to tell. And so how do you imagine bringing those narratives into that? And maybe that's not at all the right question, but take me a little bit more into the explanation of what you're thinking. Sure. I think one of the first things we need to do is whenever we want to tell the history about something, about education, we have to then ask whose stories are missing from this history. Mm -hmm. So for example, if we put forth a claim that schools haven't changed in a hundred years, well, whose stories aren't we telling? And that claim, which is very popular from our very current, uh, our current secretary of education, schools haven't changed in a hundred years. And, you know, it's an archaic assembly line model is within the last hundred years, we have dramatically reconfigured who belongs in America's schools. Uh, American public education is truly only been public since 1975 with the passage of the Individuals with Disabilities Act, which made it, um, which prohibited schools from barring children with disabilities or perceived disabilities. So when we talk about the truly notion of what it means to have American public education is really very young. I mean, it's the same age as I am. I'd like to think I'm young. I'm middle-aged. Right. Middle-aged. <laughs> <laughs> but with a lot of life left to live. Yeah, sure. exactly. So there's a lot of conversations to be had. So when we think about who school is for, you know, we talk a lot about what is school for and, and why school? Yeah. Why school? A lot of people will say why school. And this is where we have to be able to hold conflicting ideas in mind at one time. The men who advocated for common schools beginning, you know, with Thomas Jefferson in the early 1800s to Horace Mann in the mid 1800s, they were, racist, they were sexist, they likely had ableist, you know, positions around people with disabilities. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, I mean, he held that tension of advocating that, you know, we the people, but also enslaved people. So those men who pushed for common schooling, yes, they were American men and all that that entails, but the kernel of the idea they advocated for, I think, is gorgeous. In the same way, the idea of America is gorgeous. They advocated that all of America's children should sit together and learn together. Yes, but that's not exactly what the practice entailed. Yeah, and to a certain extent, it does. And one of the ways we know that is America has, um, American children for 13 years experience a liberal arts curriculum, math, science, history, you know, the arts, music, physical education. It's a fairly universal idea. Oh, wait, let's dive into that for one second. Or actually finish your thought, but we got to come back to that conversation. (laughs) Okay. In other words, uh, children in Germany, that's not necessarily the case. Children in Germany Germany are steered into particular high school tracks based on academic or vocational or other, you know, determinations. So German children don't have necessarily the same 13-year shared experience. There is some tracking there, same within Switzerland. There's a degree of separation after, you know, a certain grade level. But in America, the idea is a shared liberal arts curriculum from kindergarten to grade 12. Right. And right now, I am concerned that that liberal arts curriculum is at risk. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair concern? Are you seeing that in the work? Yeah. And there are some fantastic arguments against that shared liberal arts curriculum. Uh, it is very often Eurocentric. It is, it's the constant, the fantastic work of the disrupt text women yes. um, and all their works are doing related to the canon. Considering the idea of whether or not the liberal arts shared curriculum is at risk, Yes, I think there's a lot of conversation we had about that. And one of the challenges of a liberal arts curriculum is it does privilege some knowledge. I'm incredibly optimistic because I really feel like we're at a tipping point around anti-racist education, uh, where we are finally at a point as a system where we are truly challenging, uh, you know, institutional sexism and racism and ableism, where we can truly think about, you know, humanizing mathematics, 
teaching math from a place of humanity as opposed to you know a different headspace we can think about exposing children to diverse literature from uh, you know, across the human experience. So I think we're at a place where we can truly start to reconsider what comprises a liberal arts education. I'm terrified of what white parents with power can do. Um, the unschooling movement is one that has, is, concerns me, and I've, I've shared that on Twitter. And it's not because I think unschooling is bad, but it, because it privileges a child's knowledge. And I, it's not that a child's knowledge or interests aren't important. It's if we say to children, what you care about is more important than what our society needs, we have a lot of tensions to reconcile, if that makes sense. Yes. And I'm curious about um, where, where a child's interests and um, passions and you know, that whole personal learning concept can fit within schools. And yeah. have you wrestled with that? A little bit. And I think part of it is, is school is just a part of a child's lived experience. And we should absolutely do everything in our power to make every single school a living and safe place for every single child. No child should ever fear coming to school. But I'm okay if a kid comes to school and is occasionally bored. I'm okay with that. I don't think there's any harm in sitting in in a class and being like, I don't care about this topic. But I'm going to work with my classmates that we're going to do this, this project and I'm going to learn this content. Because if there are, you know, 20 kids learning together about a particular topic, it's possible 15 of them are going to be bored to tears. 15 of them are going to think this is the coolest thing ever. And right. Well, I, and it depends yeah. on what's leveraged. Is it the work and the skills and, you know, the collaboration piece? If that's, it depends on what's prioritized and leveraged. And it could be different for each child depending on the actual work that's being done. Yeah. You know, they may love this content in the next project. They might hate the content. But I think the, the, the work is really finding a place where every child can contribute to the learning process, mm -hmm. regardless of what their connection to the content is. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. There, there's, we just lose so much when we take this position that everything a child learns needs to be applicable. And that's one of my frustrations sometimes with the people who advocate change school now, that, you know, they're going to learn these things and never use them. Well, okay, why is that a bad thing? It, I mean, I think it's okay for us to learn, learn things as we're young people that are just cool and interesting to learn, and then we never use them again, and that's perfectly okay. Because yeah, it's okay if we learn something, forget it, and have some trigger of like connection to it that comes up years later and we revisit the idea and the concept at a later time when yeah. it matters. Absolutely. I think that that's really important. And I, I think that, I, I think there's tension in um, trying to, I think the tension in, in the content and assessing the content comes through the idea of assessment and I know you've done a lot of work around assessment and the historical context. So does that, we, I don't think we can talk about the idea of a liberal arts curriculum without also then talking about how assessment impacts that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's a lot of um, kind of fantastic anecdotes from the mid to late 1800s where young people would do public recitations of things they have learned. And it was a huge deal. The entire town would come together. Um, I saw one story, I was like a town in Iowa where there were seven graduates, but 6,000 people came to hear yes. these seven graduates do their, you know, graduation sort of demonstration of knowledge. And part of what we're always gonna to have to wrestle with is the tension between the individual and society. You know, if we're talking 74, 75 million children, there is going to come a point when we have to do, we have to do some things efficiently because it's a matter of scale, but we cannot lose the sight of humanity, which is why I'm grateful for the work of, you know, um, 
writers like um, Audrey Waters, who looks at the future of technology and the past of technology and education and how we can be efficient without sacrificing our humanity and how we thread that particular needle. So when we talk about assessment, it's how do we capture evidence of student learning to know whether or not school is accomplishing the goals we want to accomplish. And so I'm kind of shrugging as I say that because how do we best do that? Nobody knows. Right. And, and whose goals? Yeah, exactly. I think that that's the, that's the part that creates the tension um, for me when I think about whose goals are we meeting? And I think that's where it gets interesting. I think school is really important. And I am okay with kids being bored every once in a while, too, because I don't think that everything in life is not boring. Um, there's just sometimes where you watch a movie that you absolutely hate because your spouse thinks that it's necessary. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have experienced that. But but I also really think that we that teachers and school systems need to do a better job of identifying the goals of learners and, and acknowledging them so that they have some skin in the game regarding their learning. And I also wonder if our emphasis is on learning. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a constant, constant, constant tension. And if a young person's goal when there's a young person's goal when they're seven is dramatically different than their goals when they're 14. I mean, that's the nature of, of childhood. And so if we say, let's attend to this child's goals, what does that mean in the bigger picture? So if you have, you know, 20 children, all with individual personal goals that they want to achieve, what does that look like in a practical sense? And part of that then brushes up against the tensions related to the professionalism of teaching, where there are some inadvertent messages being sent around self-directed learning that it's a, an adult's job to follow behind a children behind a child, you know, okay, here's where the child wants to go. My job as an adult is to follow behind you and make sure you get what you need. And then we start getting into is teaching a profession or is it child minding? And so there's a lot of complicated tension. So my big push, whenever we talk about any of these issues is we have to ask ourselves what stories aren't being told and what are the unintended consequences? And it should be okay for us to talk about those unintended consequences. Um, it, my least favorite thing is when someone will have a conversation about this and I will freely say, I think I'm okay with kids being bored. And the response I get is, well, you don't like kids or you want, you want kids to hate school. I'm like, well, no. Right. This is so interesting. So I have been doing a lot of work around the immunity to change um, work that comes from Minds at Work. And the, the change that I'm essentially hoping to see is a focus on learning in schools and everywhere. But I don't necessarily believe that a focus on learning diminishes everything else that happens in a school. Mm -hmm. And what I'm learning as I work through my own commitments to focus on learning is that there's the tension happens at a personal level too. So my biggest fear personally when I talk about focusing on learning and really following through with what that means and getting to what my common set of beliefs are about learning both in my house and, you know, in schools that I work with is that I fear people will hear me say there's a needs to be a focus on learning and automatically assume that I don't believe in achievement uh. or accomplishment or success. And so I temper my commitment to focusing on learning so not to have to have the tension-filled conversation around what does success, accomplishment, and achievement really mean. And so that's an interesting, that's an that's interesting that you mentioned the tensions and the the tension with self-directed learning movements where potentially teachers are thinking they need to follow kids around and see what they're learning. And I actually think that. It's the real conversation that we need to have is where is the agency and do students know what it means to have learner agency? And I don't think that anybody disagrees with 
the need for learner agency, but I think that the system holds teachers accountable for achievement that may or may not be realized in an, in an agency-filled learning environment. And to add another wrinkle into that is we have to think about which children in American society are granted agency. You know, we can look at the disparate, the disparate impact of dress codes on girls. We can see that, you know, what, uh, that white boys are less likely to be penalized uh, for misbehavior in schools than black girls are. So we can see this notion of agency. One of the tensions is if we move to a model of full student agency, the children outside of school who have the most agency are non-disabled white middle-class kids. And if they given that most teachers are white middle-class women, whose agency are we going to diminish in order to advantage other children? Which isn't to say that it more, you know, if we move to a model with more agency, it's gonna be necessarily the white kids who get more agency, but the history says that's what's going to happen. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. And I think that the way we get to agency and making sure that the history doesn't prevail in this particular case is really having a lot of conversations about the, our beliefs about learning. Because I don't personally, obviously, this is my work and my belief system, that I don't really believe that the dress, what someone is wearing determines, A, how professional they are, or B, how much learning they can do. So from a teacher end and a student end, I think that, you know, dress code and other behavioral codes of conduct always get in the way of an equity piece because behavior is very much connected to um, culture, your, the culture at home, the culture in your community, what, what we, ex we expect based on our social norms, and they vary across you know, the country for sure. But I am concerned that we, we add behavior conversations and code of ethics, all of those pieces into our conversations about learning. And that's where the inequities come up. And I'm not sure that I believe that those behavior pieces indicate learning or indicate a prevention of learning or on, on inability to learn. It's, it's definitely a very complicated series of conversations to have. And each conversation that we start branches off into something else because we have to think about the whole big system. We can't just talk about dress codes. We can't just talk about behavior. We can't just talk about achievement. We can't just talk about learning. It's all connected. Right. But so then that, that leads to, are we, so the function and the purpose of school and, and I think that yeah. that's, a, that's really interesting right now in the midst of, you know, a pandemic and school closures. We're starting to see a lot of different purposes. You know, we're starting to realize that this, pr the purpose of school isn't necessarily only connected to learning, that mm -hmm. it, there's, there's a lot more societal purposes for school. But are you finding, so let's talk about that. Yeah. What are we think, learning about that? If in a nutshell, if we wanted to summarize the purpose of American public education, it is to prepare the next generation of Americans. In a nutshell, that's the basic gist. It is to prepare the next generation of voters and taxpayers. And, in what, and it looks very, very different in different places, but that's the basic nutshell. Then there are the secondary purposes. Because of the fact that the high school diploma is now currency for young people, it is very hard to get a job without one. Um, it is also because parents will virtually almost always, I believe 90% of parents, send their children to public education. It is serving a purpose in the economy where it's where kids go all day while their parents go to work. Mm -hmm. So the purpose of public education is not to provide childcare, but a societal goal of schools has become a safe place for children to be while their parents are at work. So first and foremost, it is a way to prepare the next generations using a technique that has gone back to the beginning of humanity. So when people say schools aren't for learning or they're not designed for learning, 
the act of bringing a group of humans together to learn from a person who is an expert in a topic, it goes back to the beginning of humanity. I mean, that's, we can trace those roots of that idea way, way back. It crosses societies, it crosses civilizations, it crosses the epoch. So school's doing what humans have always done. What we're doing that's different than what we see outside, quote unquote, of school is we are putting first society's identified needs for education, you know, goals for the next generation, as opposed to the individual's needs. Mm -hmm. So that's really interesting to me. And what I'm wondering about is what do you think schools need in regards to being like in regards to preparing the next generation of citizens, do they need to evolve from where they've been um, historically? I think we have absolutely no idea of the next generation needs. <laughs> so we're trying to achieve a goal. We will never know if we achieve it. Uh, what we do and so know- so there's always then people trying to change it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What we do know though, is that American public education is amazing at preparing uh, white boys to become white men in power. And we know that by looking at the political structure, the economic structure, the, the, the boards of Fortune 500 companies, we see the dominance of white men in our society in positions of leadership. So even though school is a place where white girls are most likely to th thrive and want to return as teachers, even though it is a place that people will claim destroys young people's spirits, there is a group of young people who go on to do very, very well for themselves in our society who went through school. So if <clears throat> what we want is school to be a place that prepares all of America's children to have or to be the kind of adult they want to be, we have to consider systemic anti-racist education, systemic anti-sexist and um, consent-based education. We have to move to a model where it is completely within our daily experiences that we encounter people with disabilities and that people with disabilities have the full access to the full spectrum of the human experience that we designed from a place, you know, universal designs for learning that we designed from a place that we want to be welcoming to everyone with needs in our society, not designed for, you know, a typical, you know, a quote unquote non-disabled or typical child right. and then modify. Right. So I, I'm actually the statewide systems coordinator in Wisconsin for universal design for learning. And UDL absolutely informs the majority of the practices that I seek to see in most schools. Um, and I think what the key to that is, there's, there's three keys to universal design that I think are hugely important. And that is the universality piece, which of course we need to make sure that we have welcoming environments. What is essential for some is good for all. And universal design for learning in some circles has been um, the weakness of UDL is the equity or the anti-racist lens. And that has, there's a paper out there and I'll look and link it up in the show notes, specifically on the cross-pollination of culturally sustaining pedagogies and universal design for learning. Mm -hmm. And the two of those together really do inform that anti-racist um, those anti-racist practices and building um, systems that honor all of our children. Mm -hmm. And the other two pieces are design. We have to design for the barriers. But then the last piece is always where I get stuck in this is my own personal work is on learning. And we talk a lot in Modern Learners that we take for granted, we as in the collective, we as in educators, the system of education, take for granted that we have a common understanding of what learning is. And um, I think that wrestling with our beliefs about learning is really informative into, into the building the systems that you and I both want to see, which is anti-racist and equitable systems for women and people with disabilities, et cetera. Mm. So I just don't know that we have a mechanism to systematize and operationalize those concepts, those systems. Yeah. Be because 
I don't know that we're talking about it enough. That's my concern and my criticism is I'm just not sure. I think we're talking a lot about the system and the purpose is to, so if the purpose is what you say it is, and that's to, you know, to create the next generation of citizens for the United States, that's great. But what, what is it that that really means? Like, what is it they need to learn into in order to be contributing citizens of the United States? Mm -hmm. And we will never know the answer to that question. So we're always going to be guessing. So when people talk about designing schools for the future, it's always a guess. We, We will never know. And we have to be okay with never knowing. But what we know is our current system isn't working when we, we, we can just simply look around when the representation of humanity, of American humanity, isn't seen at all in positions of power. Right. Or is belittled when they are in positions of power. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I, I absolutely hear you. So then the question becomes, so we, we will never know, but in order to, to design systems that can address the issues that we currently see, what are the first steps? Yeah. So I think part of that is, you know, I'm very much on board with the concept of learner-centered practices uh, in the, what the um, Education Reimagined group is doing and advocating that one of the ways that we can reconcile the tensions between systemic needs and a child's individual interest is to design with the learner in mind, to use things like essential questions and curriculum design, to allow students to show their knowledge in a variety of ways, to have a healthy balanced assessment system, to have a combination of multiple choice and performance tasks and portfolios, to have ensure that the system is, uh, in terms of assessment, is diverse enough so that every student gets an opportunity to excel. And there may be some times when they don't excel and that's okay. Okay. Yes, I agree. (laughs) That is okay. And that's part of the reflective piece of learning, right? Like they, they have to recognize what they need support in, in order to get the support that they need for sure. Yeah. And, and feeling that that disappointment when they're, they didn't reach a certain goal. But again, I always come back to if it's learner-centered work, we have to recognize that each learner would have a different goal. And establishing, you know, standard level of achievement expectations, you know, for school-level reporting on state-level report cards and things like that, that, that to me gets – puts us at risk of not honoring the learner, yeah. but to prioritizing the system. Yeah. And, and while I think the system can certainly have practices that benefit both the learner and the system, when we are constantly on, constantly grinding to achieve a certain level of achievement as, you know, for the report card system, that's where I think it's dangerous and potentially trauma-inducing because right now in the system, we are not necessarily designing those situations for our students of color or our students with varying abilities or our girls or even sometimes our boys, right? Depending on where we are. And that's, we have to recognize that in some way. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that is. Yeah, and I think that's okay. I think that's the strength of these conversations. We have to, we, when we can comfortably say, and I don't know, we have made a huge leap forward in the conversation. If some of our high profile school change advocates were to say, I know I need to talk about this and we need to do better by our black girls and by our kids with disabilities and by our trans kids. And I don't know the answer to that. Oh, that would be such a huge cognitive shift. Instead of it being, you need to change schools now because schools aren't made for learning and this is bad and they haven't changed in 100 years and factory model. (laughs) Right. So then that's filled with inaccuracies and we're not actually getting to the work that will have an impact on learning in schools. And I for think it's all worth, children. Yeah, and I think it's worth to also make a call out for humbleness. So we can be very much against grades and against those things and against state-mandated tests. 
but we have to acknowledge and we being you know the white middle class middle-aged white women who make up the majority of the profession the push for that state accountability test didn't come because they didn't trust teachers it came from the fact that there was no way for states to know what was happening in their schools and there was a reason That's why key. organizations you need to like, say that again sorry i'm interrupting you <laughs> no no <laughs> you, you need to go back and say that again and you can start <laughs> with the point where the standardized systems the state report card systems were not created because we didn't trust teachers who are mostly white middle class women Go, yeah, go there, repeat a, that. Yeah, it came from a place that states had no way of knowing what was happening in their schools. And so the push came from this idea. And there was a reason why organizations like the NAACP and other Black and African American groups signed on to things like No Child Left Behind was because there isn't a lot of evidence in American education history that we're doing everything we can within our power. And assessments are a tool. Multiple choice tests are a tool of the teaching profession. So mm -hmm. if we want to assess if students are learning, let's use a tool from the teacher toolbox, which multiple choice tests are. And there's a great book by Jack Snyder called Beyond Test Scores, which talks about the next level of the work going beyond just test scores. And again, everything sits with two tensions. NCLB wasn't because they didn't trust teachers, but at the same time, teachers aren't trusted because of things that we know in the system. Uh, and how we can, we can see evidence of that and the, the lack of teacher at presence on different committees, um, that seven out of 10 teachers are women, but seven out of 10 um, administrators and leaders in education are men. So there's always that tension. So NCLB came out of a need for states to understand what was happening in their schools at the same time, we're constantly struggling with or negotiating or trying to get our head out of our elbows in terms of what does it mean to have a female-dominated profession? Amen. And that is hugely important to me, um, which just, uh, I, I just cannot even tell you how important that is to me because I do feel um, I work with a lot of school leaders and the number of women at the table of leadership is just ridiculously low mm -hmm. compared to the amount of women in classrooms. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure what the barrier is um, and how to remove that barrier for women to um, see themselves at the leadership table and even as a classroom teacher to invite themselves um, to the table for so conversation. Here, here's the thing though, here's what I would offer to you. It's not we need women to see themselves as leaders more, we need men to see themselves as followers. Ooh, I like that idea. <laughs> so um, we, yeah, we can push for all women to step up at every available opportunity, but if we don't have men who are willing to say, you know what, this one, I'm, I'm not going to go for the superintendent job, which is such a mixed message because of course you should be able to do the career you want, but we need men in every aspect of American society to say, you know what, I'm going to set this one out. And that's not until that happens. Whew. That is so fascinating. Um, wow. On that note, I have no <laughs> idea where to go. Um, but, it, but it is really important to the work. Um, and, you know, we've talked a lot about, now I keep saying we, and I want to say that I have learned from my colleagues of color in the last year and a half in the because i've done a tremendous amount of work um anti-racism work personally i have done a ton of work and i have learned over and over that the collective we is just not a good thing to talk about so yeah. i'm going to define that and i'm going to be vulnerable and i'm going to leave that in this podcast because i think it's really important so every time i say we i really have to think about who the antecedent of that is but I, I think that in the work, I, I've lost my train of thought because I'm so, it's so important to me that we don't use we, but I am really concerned that, oh, I know where I was going, the, the keynote speaking piece. I want to 
I want our keynote speakers to say they want to hear from other people. And a personal experience with this is I, I have presented and spoke um, on stage or at workshops several mm-hmm. times and with men several times and with the keynote men probably even more times than any other, any other, anybody else that I've ever spoken with. And I can say that they kept climbing and getting the big gigs and I kept doing the workshops. Mm. And I'm, I actually don't know that I became uncomfortable with that until I started to do this work, to do this work um, connected to anti-racism. And that's, I think, the piece that I want to talk about just to close this interview out, Jen, is the work of anti, the anti-racism work that we can all do informs every label, sexism, ableism, et cetera. If we can do the work around anti-racism and call it out, because that work is asking whose voices we're not hearing a lot of times. But do you believe that doing the work of anti-racism can actually help inform all of the other pieces? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because we can't, if we're not, if we're not thinking about our black trans kids, we're not truly being anti-racist. If we're not thinking about, uh, you know, our Asian students with disabilities, we haven't, we're not doing, we're not doing the full complement of the work as it were. So, yeah, I do believe that, which is why I will continue to defend a liberal arts education for American students when, as, long, as, as we move towards having an anti-racist lens to that work. So, yeah, yes. I absolutely think that's the case. So, Modern Learners has a lens, and we are really actually proud of the lens and the framework, and it has to do with, you know, what we believe about learning, what the modern context of that learning is, and what the, you know, what the modern context of the world is that impacts schools, and then what the practices are that really help us live out our beliefs while recognizing the modern context. And I think that the work for modern learners going forward is to figure out what, that, what layering in the anti-racism into all three of those components really means Mm -hmm. and how that lens might affect or impact our lens. And that's the work that I'm committed to working on going forward. And it's the work that you do and the work that um, Dr. Kim Parker does and Trisha Barvia and so many others, um, whether it be the hashtag clear the air or the hashtag disrupt text or the hashtag 31 days of IBPOC, there are a lot of people out there sharing freely their labor in, re- in relationship to anti-racist, anti-racism. And mm-hmm. we, the collective we, as in white middle-class women educators, <laughs> really need to look at that. And, and they're inviting people into the conversation when they have the conversation freely on Twitter and in other places. And I think that the, the most important thing is is to listen and to experience those conversations and think about them without reacting in that space. But to take those, to take those conversations and learn from them and wrestle with them on your own so that at some point you feel comfortable contributing to the conversations at a place where you're open to learning and digging deeper yeah. with their support. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jen. It's so complicated, Melissa. I wish it was like we could say, here's what we need to do. Let's do this. Well. (laughs) Yeah, it's the ongoing work. And that's, I also want to just say, I think that being willing to do the work is really important. And at the same time, recognizing, which we talked about before we pushed record, but recognizing that we are in a pandemic right now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's very difficult. And it's not necessarily the time to take on um, anti-racist work when you're barely trying to survive your day. Um, And recognizing that we're all in different places dealing with what this pandemic means for ourselves, our families, our communities, and the global world. So recognizing that is really important as well. But there's also the, at the same time, if we, 
if we set it, we, if we set it down, if we inadvertently shift into a headspace where we think, well, I can do this when it's easiest, when it's convenient, we may be inadvertently replicating patterns of the past. So it's incredibly hard to do, mm-hmm. which it's work that we have to keep doing even when it's incredibly hard to do. Yes. And you know, Jen, what I found in regards to my own personal work is it's the willingness to experience a little bit each day. Yeah. And it's the slow drip method of doing the work. I don't necessarily think every school should open the year with anti-racist workshops and in-services to make sure that we um, don't repeat the patterns. I think it's the slow daily drip of witnessing what other people experience that has had the greatest impact on my learning. Mm -hmm. And for that, I'm so appreciative that there's a little nugget every day, everywhere I look. Yeah, I hear you. So thank you again. It's just, (laughs) like you said, I wish it could be easy. And this is just the first conversation in our conversations about the historical context, but it is definitely one that will have me thinking for the rest of the day (laughs) and the month probably. So thank you so much. Sure. When you talk to other historians, um, I strongly advocate for asking if you talk to historians of... um, of education related to children of color specifically is asking is having them talk um, to your listeners about how uh, communities of color have sought to empower and educate their children independent of the American public school system. Because um, we, we, you know, the collective we that we've just now defined as, you know, us, mm-hmm. us white ladies have asked for an incredible amount of patience from generations of parents of color. And I, there are some amazing stories in history where communities of color said, you know what, we're not waiting anymore, and here's how we're going to solve the problem ourselves. And there's been some great pieces that have come out of um, Black authors during the pandemic about how, for some kids, this may be the safest time they've ever experienced education. Because they're not experiencing racism at school, they're not experiencing racist teachers, they're not experiencing a white lens to everything. They may be getting, for the first time, Afrocentric instruction. They may be getting, you know, Black liberation history. And we have to reconcile with that. So if, if when you bring in other historians, I hope they're able to share with your listeners some of that history. And on that note, if you're listening, you should definitely stay tuned for that because I wrote all of those questions down. <laughs> and we will definitely be having a historian um, who brings a perspective of a person of color, without a doubt. So thank you so much, Jen. I really appreciate your time. And as I always say, leaving the podcast, have a great day. Don't get in trouble. <laughs>